This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. We are just a few weeks away from the beginning of wheat planting. Hopefully, if you're in an area that has gotten some rain, while wheat can be planted in September, it's not suggested except under conditions when paired with cattle grazing. Research has shown that while planting early can give more fall foliage, it doesn't translate to better grain yields. Early planting will tend to have more hessian flies, and in this area, have more aphids that carry the barley yellow dwarf virus, which was a common problem last spring. Also, early planting will tend to have more root rot problems because soil fungus is more active in warmer temperatures. Speaking of soil fungus and aphids, this brings about the discussion of using seed treatments for planted wheat. If buying new wheat from a foundation or company, there's a good chance that it'll be treated. However, many farmers will plant their own held back bin run wheat. Treatments can be added to bin run wheat on the farm in a number of farmer engineered methods, but it's not easy to get good coverage without getting gummy seeds. Often specialized equipment at seed houses work best. Three types of coating can be applied, including fungicide, insecticide, and plant growth regulators. Fungicide seed treatments is especially important to control the smut funguses. Even low levels of smut in the previous harvest can affect large parts of the next crop. This year will have an increased concern from planting bin run wheat due to the problems we had with Fusarium this harvest. Fusarium doesn't carry in the seed, but it can reduce germination rates, even in the seed without a noticeable Fusarium discoloration. Insecticide treatments can help protect the seed in the soil and reduce the risk of aphids and therefore barley yellow dwarf. Germination and stress testing in bin run seed is highly suggested before planting. Just bring a couple of pounds of seed into an extension office it will help you fill out the forms and mail it to the Kansas Crop Improvement Association for testing. One important part of deciding to buy new certified seed or plant bin run wheat is if the bin run wheat is even allowed to be planted. While the possibility of replanting seed is much more likely in the world of wheat versus GMO of corn and soybeans, there are still certifications, registrations, and rules to deal with. In a very general sense, there are three levels of seed protectionism. The highest level is where grain from last harvest is not allowed to be replanted even by the farmer that grew the crop. This is similar to most corn and soybean seeds. The second level is where the original seed must be purchased from a certified seed dealer, but then the preceding crop can be replanted by that farmer for a certain period of time, usually about three plantings. At this level, the crop cannot be sold for seed unless the farmer has been licensed for seed certification. At the lowest level, a certification is none at all. The seed has no genetics that anyone owns, and sometimes the seed has mixed genetics with no names. This can be planted and replanted as many times as wanted. In truth, the question of whether the rules when it comes to replanting seed is complicated, and it depends on the company of who created the variety. If you have any questions about seed treatments or seed planting legalities, please give me a call at 620 724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. Last segment, I shared with you some ideas of how to individually account for livestock using various numbering systems. This round, Let's discuss some of the ways those numbers can be displayed and used to optimize profitability. There are many options. Ear tags, hot brand, ear notch, freeze brand, electronic devices, tattoos, paint brands, neck chains, nose printing. The visibility and stayability of these options vary greatly. 
Ear tags, some electronic devices, neck chains, paint and freeze brands are all temporary. Permanent forms are hot brands, some electronic devices, tattoos, ear notches, and nose prints. In addition to the permanence varying, the visibility is not the same with all methods. For notes on birthing dates or checking for sick livestock, an observable method is highly preferred. Some industries use specific methods. Consider ear notching in swine operations or neck chains on dairies. Nearly all species make use of tattoos for individual identification, but reading tattoos while doing chores is not the easiest job. Electronic devices require readers and other equipment to operate, but can aid in record management and industry traceability. Paint brands are very temporary, used for sorting or in livestock sales. Nose prints, while desirable as a permanent method, are not at all useful at chore time. Each cow has a unique nose print, similar to a fingerprint. Hot brands are generally used as ranch ownership rather than identifying individual animals. They're placed on the shoulder or the hip. While hot brands are highly visible, they're not useful on specific animals. Freeze brands, on the other hand, are specific to an individual. A freeze brand destroys the natural pigments of the hair, producing the growth of white hair. This relatively painless method of branding reduces hide damage. Freeze brands, while not always lifelong, will last for several years. For most producers, ear tags are the easiest to see when checking livestock, followed by freeze branding. Tags are commonly used because they tend to be inexpensive and simple to get started with, requiring only the tag and an applicator tool. There are many different brands of tags commercially available. Finding the style and brand that best suits your herd may take a few tries. Look for the style that doesn't pull out of the ear from animals walking through brush or consuming hay through a bale feeder. Tags with numbers can be purchased or you can buy blank tags and write the information on it that you desire. Next time, we'll discuss record keeping for profit. For more information on how to implement an individual identification system, as well as how to use that system to improve performance and profitability, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is David Strauss, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. Coyotes are the number one predator of livestock in Kansas and in most of the western United States. In general, individual coyotes will range over areas of about 10 to 25 square miles and those ranges usually overlap to varying degrees. Kansas coyotes are accustomed to human odor. They are active primarily at night, but may venture close to houses even in broad daylight if terrain or cover are adequate for concealment. 
In Kansas, coyotes normally go under or through fences whenever possible. However, they are capable of jumping or climbing over fences and will do so under some circumstances. Not all coyotes kill livestock. Those coyotes which are killing livestock are usually referred to as offending animals. It is desirable when using lethal control methods to direct those methods at offending animals. Of course, there is no way to look at any individual coyote through a rifle scope or in a trap and be able to tell whether or not it is an offending animal. However, in a damage situation, control methods can be concentrated in and around the damage area and along coyote travel routes to and from the area. When this is done, there is reasonable assurance that the offending coyote will be among the first few coyotes captured. Predation on livestock appears to bear some relationships to coyote's seasonal energy needs. Coyotes breed in February and have one litter of five to seven pups in late April or May. During and immediately following this spring whelping season, coyote energy demands increase rapidly as the parents provide food for the young. At this time, some coyotes turn to livestock as a readily available source of food. In late summer and early fall, another increase in coyote predation is usually noted. At this time of year, the food demands of the large and fast-growing pups may tend to be more than the ability of the adults to provide them with natural foods. Again, domestic livestock may offer an easily obtainable source of abundant food. This late summer increase in predation may also be related to learning or development of livestock killing behavior by the coyote pups. Winter losses of livestock to coyotes are generally lower than at other times of year despite the high energy needs of individual coyotes. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a David Strauss with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. When snow falls and cities need to clear off streets and sidewalks, they turn to salts to de-ice. Salt is great for hard surfaces, but creates problems when introduced to soil and plants. Salt can impact plants in two different ways, by a physical contact with plants thanks to spray, or by salt particle runoff into the soil where plants are present. Spray will have very noticeable damage on the sections of the plants it physically touches. Often this will come in the form of burn patches because water is physically pulled out of the tissue by the salt particles. Salts applied to roads can travel up to 1,000 feet from the application site in the form of sprays. Usually this is due to high-speed traffic hitting salted patches of road or highway. People who live next to well-traveled roads might want to consider plants more tolerant to salt spray like those on the east coast. Most plants that don't have active growth will only be slightly affected by salt spray, but evergreen plants can be affected at any time during the winter. Deciduous plants will be hit hardest after late snowfalls or ices when the plants are starting to bud or leaf out. Unfortunately, plants that have been hit by salt spray will find it very hard to recover scorched sections due to the dehydration that the spray causes. These sections will likely need to be pruned out at the first opportunity. 
Salt in the soil also causes problems for plants, but the problems span the entire plant and are much harder to diagnose at a glance. Salts like those used in most de-icers occur naturally in the soil, but start causing problems when the concentration of salt gets too high. With salt spray, the salt that lands on the plant tissue pulls the water out of it. Soil salt, on the other hand, influences the soil's osmotic potential. In biological systems, water always flows from an area of high water concentration to an area of low water concentration. When salt is introduced to one side of the equation, it lowers water's concentration because water makes up a smaller amount of the total molecules present. Roots can overcome a small imbalance in osmotic potential, but if salt builds up in excess, the water concentration in the soil becomes so low that water can get pulled out of the plant's roots and stems instead. This reverse water flow will almost always look like drought damage, even if you have been diligent in your watering. When we hear salt, most people think of sodium chloride, but chemically, salts are more than just sodium. In most cases, saline soils, soils with too many salts, can be remedied by heavy rainfall or watering, which carries the salt molecules deeper into the soil profile where they cannot affect most plant roots. Sodium buildup is harder to rectify, and if you are getting a de-icer at the store for this winter, you will want to choose a product that does not use a sodium salt as its active ingredient. If you are looking for salt-tolerant plants for your garden, here are a few to consider. For trees, serviceberry, buckeye, red and white oak, hackberry, arborvitae, crabapple, and pin oak. Maples, redbuds, and lindens are not tolerant to salt buildup. For shrubs, look for sumacs, lilacs, boxwoods, junipers, viburnums, and flowering quince while steering clear from dogwoods. For more information on today's topic, contact your local Extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Port Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.